Ordinary Fellowship is a podcast inspired by the Puritan practice of godly conference or spiritual conversations among believers. These spiritual conversations will offer practical spiritual help for Christian living. I'm Jeremy Lee, and with me as always is Matthew McLaughlin. How are you this morning? I am fine, Jeremy. How are you? Good. I'm ready to uh, discuss some blogs that we found important or relevant or valuable, however you want to, however you want to put it. This this will be fun today. Yeah. In fact, um, the last time we did this, this is the this is the episode. The blog is fear briefing, as we're calling it for now. That's the episode that has had the most listens. Very nice. So apparently, people like us rambling on about blogs that we like. Well, we like to ramble, so. <laughs> so, um, a few things before we actually start. Last time uh, that we did this, I tried to put the web addresses for all the articles in the show notes, and that didn't work very well. So, uh, this time I'm going to be putting them all on our Facebook account, so Ordinary Fellowship's Facebook account. So, if you're interested in reading further anything that we discuss uh, all those articles will be available on Facebook for you to look at and view. Just want to let you know that ahead of time. You'll know where to find them. The other thing is, I am going to be at least discussing some things that are more political in nature. And I just want to make it known that, you know, our church supports us as far as our podcast, but they don't necessarily supporting everything we say. The, so the things that Matthew and I talk about on the podcast are our views and they shouldn't be assumed to be the view of everyone at Two Rivers Community Church. I can't imagine that you'll ever hear us talk about partisan political things. We're not, since I'm an independent anyways, I'm not really into, interested in partisan politics other than to observe what's going on. But anyways, so just a few caveats before we started today. So do you have anything to add to that, Matthew? Nope, I think that's good. Okay, so the first thing I, I wanted to talk about today was an article, this was from Fox News, this was around election time, I find my quote that pulled from it, it says, Parlor became the number one most downloaded app on Apple's App Store during the week of election day, and number two on Google Play, according to app analytics company, Apptopia. Parler is a is a social media app like Facebook and Twitter, but they they don't censor they don't censor speech on there like Twitter and Facebook both do, and probably Instagram as well. I'm just not very familiar with Instagram. I'm not really familiar with Parler either, and, I, and this is not to say join Parler or anything, but. A lot of people are tired of social media censorship, and I agree. <laughs> but one of the things that upsets me about the way it's handled is that instead of leaving Facebook and Twitter and finding other platforms that are more in line with what you want to do, Congress gets involved. And I think that's a bad thing. This is this is a fact for both the left and the right. The left was upset about Russian interference in the election, and uh, it was all the way back in 2016. Also, uh, so-called hate speech, 
they're wanting to limit that. And of course, they want political ads to be fact-checked by Twitter and Facebook, likely because they think the people at Twitter and Facebook are more in agreement with them. Conservatives, Republicans, do the same thing. They want to force companies to go against the things that they believe in by not allowing them to censor certain groups. Um, I am opposed to censorship when the government does it. I really don't like it when businesses do it. But I think the response is if you don't like that business and, and the things they're doing, you go to another one that's not doing that. I don't think the appropriate response is to try to get Congress involved to get your viewpoint forced upon other people. So I think the I think the best thing to do is what's happening that people are going to another another place because then freedom is promoted. People who want to stay on Facebook and like the things that Facebook and Twitter are doing can stay there. People that don't like it can go to Parlor. It's just like if you don't like Kroger. For whatever reason, you can go to Walmart. You're not going to call your congressman and demand that Kroger carry the products that you like. You're just going to go to the store that carries the products you like. To do otherwise is just you're opening up the door for the government to take control of everything. And they're, they're certainly not the answer to all the problems in life. So... I have no stake in Parler. I'm not part of social media. Uh, the only thing I do on Facebook is promote our is promote our blog. I'm not on Twitter. I'm not on Instagram. I'm not on Parler. I have no plans to join Parler. So this isn't a push for them, but this is just to say this is how these things should be handled by turning to other platforms and not turning to government. Try to because. You can freely go from Facebook to Parler, but the government gets involved. They have big guns, and they coerce you to do things. So I like it a lot better when I just have the choice of going somewhere else uh, rather than being forced at the end of the gun to do it. <laughs> I'm sure Matthew has a lot to say about this. Oh, I could say some things. <laughs> I think that what you said, the concept is right. Hopefully, one of the lessons we've learned from this past year is hoping the government is a really bad idea. Ultimately, government cannot solve our problems. They just it, they can't. No matter how hard they try, they can't. And we can have a theological discussion as to why they can't solve our problems, but the fact of the matter remains, government cannot solve our problems. And so, therefore... It also feeds into the terminology as the grievance industry. Too many people spend all their time trying to find reasons to be offended and to be upset. Now, does censorship occur on Facebook and Twitter? Yes. It's almost unimaginable how you can come to the, any other conclusion. That doesn't necessarily mean, as Jeremy said, that the proper solution is to call the government and have the government fix it because the government solution probably won't be what would be the best solution. That's <laughs> where the free market comes into play. And so going to parlor is a good thing as long as the people who go to parlor still maintain their the proper outlook on life. 
sometimes censorship is a good thing if you're going to st- yell fire in a crowded movie theater. <laughs> That's why the Supreme Court says you can't do that. It's there's, So there's a limitation on free speech. So the idea that free speech above all else, yes, free speech is in the First Amendment, and yes, we need to hold it very dear, but that doesn't mean that I get to yell whatever I want and there's no consequences for it. If I yell something that's offensive or racist or anything else, then I... I have all of us have a responsibility to shout that down even louder because that's what free speech calls me to do. Yeah. But again, asking the government to get involved isn't necessarily the proper solution. Yeah. And we I could go on about this for the rest of the program, but there's other things we want to talk about. So I I think that's an important thing to take notice of. And so and the reason why I'm sharing first before Matthew is cuz Matthew has more gospel-related issues, maybe. I mean, that that one was uh, just political, but this this next one that I want to discuss it also has biblical implications. Uh, this article is from Christianity Today, uh, and it's entitled "The U.S. Will Reopen to Refugees: Is the U.S. Church Ready?" It reports that Joe Biden, uh, the president-elect, elect has committed to the annual ceiling for refugee admissions at 125,000 refugees. And that's uh, a 956% increase over this federal fiscal year that recently ended. He's going to be raising the number of refugees uh, who can come into this nation by a great number. And so this article is really uh, calling this to the attention to the church and to be prepared for this. There's a couple challenges that the article points out. It says, uh, number one, uh, it's, it's going to be hard to meet the 125,000 goal. The first reason is because uh, there is a thorough vetting process that takes nearly 18 months to com- or longer to complete so that takes a long time, and, and it's not going to just be in an instant. The other issue is that the infrastructure for integrating refugees into local communities has been decimated, and that's because uh, the current administration didn't see this as a priority. Whatever your views are of that, I'm not trying to pick on anybody, but that's the reality. So the infrastructure is broken down, and Christianity Today says that the infrastructure simply cannot be rebuilt overnight, but therein lies the opportunity for the church. It goes on to explain that uh, historically, immigra- not immigration, because there's a difference here, these refugees who are coming to the U.S., usually it's a partnership between the government and faith-based groups to get these people over here. The article talks about several reasons why Christians should be involved in this. Uh, But I think one of the main reasons uh, that they give is that many of these refugees are persecuted Christians. There are brothers and sisters in Christ. They face persecution in places like Burma, Iran, Iraq, and Pakistan. And so they're coming to the United States to be able to flee that persecution and they're like I said brothers and sisters in Christ now I know immigration is a hotly contested issue right now 
the refugee issue is related, but I don't believe it's the same thing. Uh, refugees are coming here not just as immigrants, but that there's severe problems in their country. And some of these places are the result of, of U.S. foreign policy. Whether you agree or disagree with how the U.S. handled these things, the side effect is that there are many refugees, many people left in need of places to go. So I think this is an important thing that we we as a church sh- should be getting ready for. And we there are several, I won't read you all the things, you can read it when I share it, but there are several ways that, that this article suggests uh, helping or encouraging these refugees and things like that. But I think the thing we have to be most prepared for is whether you agree with this or not about refugees coming and whether it should be supported by the church, I I think it should be supported. But, you know, there there are concerns, and I'm not ignorant of those concerns. But regardless, it's going to happen (laughs) whether we like it or not. So I think as Christians, our primary focus, we need to see this as a gospel opportunity. And so some of the people who will be coming here are Christians who have escaped persecution. And that that's an opportunity for us to encourage and disciple them, start new churches that speak in the language like Urdu and the languages they speak. We need to encourage new churches and things like that. Uh, maybe ministries in our churches related to reaching out to refugees. That would be really important. And then there's going to be some people who aren't Christians. And they may come, like Pakistan, there's hardly any Christian witness there. There's many unreached people there. They're coming here to the United States. Of course, most of them are, are going to be Muslims. Um, and I always tell people, you know, if you're scared of Sharia law and terrorism, if you're afraid of those things, the answer is the gospel. Because Pakistanis who worship Jesus Christ are not going to be interested in Sharia law and um, jihad. So... I think I think the gospel is the answer to those things. So I appreciate this uh, call uh, from Christianity Today to be prepared for this, and I, I I think we do need to be ready for this. And I, I the four uh, things that they suggest in the Christianity Today article are things that uh, churches and individual Christians could get involved with. with. And I'm trying to think through in my own life how I can be involved in that. Um, And then especially thinking about it as as a gospel opportunity to disciple believers and evangelize those who don't know Christ. I read that and I'm I'm excited about it. I work with many immigrants and um, they're they're very open to discussions about faith, unlike uh, many of the Americans who I work with. They like to shut it down, so. But they're very open to talk, so it's it's exciting to me to see this happening. So I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, Matthew. 
I think that your primary point is the point we need to take into our minds, which is that one, we can argue about the feasibility or the rightness of it, but it doesn't change the fact. It's like yelling at the wind. It's still going to come no matter what. So therefore, do we see it as a, as a providential thing that where God brings people to us who we can then take the gospel to? We don't have to go anywhere. They're here. Or do we see it as, do we view it, instead of viewing it through a Christian lens, do we view it through our political lens and spend our right. time yelling at the wind? So one of just as an example, one of the largest blessings at our recent association meeting for the, the Greater Dayton Association of Baptists was there was a church that we took into Watchka membership near United Awakening. And they're basically made up of refugees from Congo and Rwanda. So you, when you stop and you think about it, there's a large Congonese population in the middle of the farm fields of Ohio. Right. And there's... There's a lot of Turkish people in Dayton. There's uh, a lot of people from Sudan in Dayton. I have a friend who's from Iraq. So just here in Dayton, right? there's a lot of opportunity, and a lot of these people will be coming to places like Dayton. Right, and it goes back to what you've said. In the command from Christ was to take the gospel to the world. Well, the world comes to us. We shouldn't <laughs> fight it. We should be thankful for it and use it as the opportunity to enlarge Christ's kingdom. Yeah, and I, and to be upfront, I'm I would I don't want to call myself liberal because I'm not a liberal, <laughs> but I'm I lean more towards open immigration and those kind of things anyway. So. Um, I'm not a fan of border walls or anything like that. No matter no matter which party's putting them up, <laughs> that's why this would excite me because I'm all for it. <laughs> yeah, I understand. So now we're going to transition a little bit to my first article, which last week Jay Adams passed away, and if you don't know who Jay Adams is. We're going to talk about an article posted by a man named Brad Hambrick, who is the counseling pastor at J.D. Gross Church in North Carolina. There's many articles that you can go find about Jay Adams and his influence, but primarily to explain it simply, Jay Adams is considered the father of modern the biblical counseling movement. He wrote a book in 1970 called Competent to Counsel, and it changed the way people, especially, people view counseling. He dramatically challenged the status quo of that psychology had the answers to certain problems and the Bible talked about other problems and that in reality the Bible spoke to all the problems of life no matter what those problems might be. He created an organization called the National Association of Euthetic Counselors which has now become the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors and he just did many things. But what Hambrick does in the article, and what I want to spend some time talking about, is just what Jay Adams' influence was upon the church. The first thing for us to understand is that his primary influence, who he sought to influence more than anyone else, was that he spoke to pastors. Adams wanted to call the church back to confidence in the Bible by enriching how pastors did counseling. So, a life lesson we can learn from Adams would be that if you have to have a significant impact with the great idea that God has laid on your life, 
know your audience, and learn to speak to that audience well. Adams understood that to change the way churches dealt with people's problems, you needed to speak to a pastor. So as you read Adams' books, he writes in a way that easily transitions to sermons and to the counseling room so that pastor can understand it. But not only that, Adams had the courage of his convictions. So another life lesson we could learn was that good ideas without courage amount to little. For we have to understand that change is hard and that even action and words towards change, even necessary and needed change, are likely to be met with resistance. Therefore, to experience change requires courage. If you would stop and survey the landscape of that Adams walked into in the early 70s. It would have been very easy along the path for him simply to give it up and say, okay, I tried, but I'm not going to change the status quo. Adams persisted because his belief told him that God had the answers, that in the Bible was all of the answers for man's problems. And so he held to the courage of his convictions in the face of unimaginable name-calling and challenges to his thinking. The third lesson that we can learn from Adams' life is that whatever you consider your life calling, think of that calling in decades, not in weeks or months. Adams wrote over 100 books. It takes time to write 100 books. It requires diligence. It requires an unrelenting passion. His focus was that boat was there for decades. A fourth lesson we can learn from Adams is that what you know what you believe in and become excellent within that framework. Adams would say this, that what does the Bible, the source of my counseling theory, say? For I cannot faithfully or effectively use any secondary tool until I'm excellent in my base theory. There's nothing wrong with knowing lots of stuff and knowing lots of facts and bringing those facts to bear. But fundamentally, Adams understood that the Bible was his base theory, his source. The source of knowledge is God and his, and his word. And he held to it with a fervor that was unmatched for his time. A final life lesson from Adams' biography would be this. When you remain fruitful, the fruit of that work will eventually become evident. As time has gone on, those people who vigorously challenged Adams and relented over time that he was right. And so he understood that the fruit will show itself eventually. The reason why this article is important to me is because though I never met Jay Adams, Adams has greatly influenced my life through his writings, through his work, and shaped a lot of how I hope and view and try to do ministry. Because Adam's unrelenting passion that the, in Scripture we find the answers to all of man's problems, whatever they might be, is, I believe, the solution to life. We don't have to look outside of Scripture, but we must look to Scripture, which means, therefore, we must master Scripture. And when we master Scripture, then and then only will we understand how how God intends for us to live life. And so I am grateful for the legacy of Jay Adams. 
We'll come to our last article we want to spend some time talking about is On Desiring God, written by Marshall Siegel, and it's entitled, But Have You Prayed? He starts the article by saying, Prayerlessness, of course, comes in varieties. Some almost never pray, proving that prayer is nothing more than a formality, a greeting card to God when they have time. Others only pray when they have some desperate and immediate need, treating prayer like a crisis response slide and largely neglecting prayer otherwise. Others may pray, pray regularly, but their prayers slowly devolve into repeated phrases that taste stale, impersonal, and removed from real life. Even the best among us sometimes swing between treasuring prayer when we think we really need it and skipping prayer when life seems to be going well. Prayer, however, is not a last resort, but a first line of defense. Because prayer is not a last resort, but the one to whom we look first. Sorry, because God is not a last resort, but the one to whom we look first. Prayer is powerful because God is the most powerful agent of change in any of our lives. And he continues on from there to speak about a story in Mark 9. But I have been thinking a lot lately, as you look around at the environment of the world, so many things that we would classify as chaotic. No matter what your views on the election are, it's clearly we can call the aftermath chaotic. As we look at coronavirus and the aftermath of the pandemic, as we enter what is at least another wave, I know I've lost count of what number of wave this is, but another wave, it feels chaotic and it feels troubling and we don't know what to do and where to turn and and I wonder how well we pray. And it really was a challenge to me that prayer needs to be more important than we, than I make it, than we, all of us make it. Because it is like what he says. We, we treat prayer like God is the great jukebox in the sky and we push the button and <laughs> put in our order. Or we call him the vending machine and we, we, and we think we're supposed to get. It's why personal pet peeve it drives me nuts when people say god didn't answer my prayer because they didn't get what they wanted god answered their prayer they just didn't like the answer same <laughs> thing with me i just didn't like the answer just because god said no away doesn't mean that's not an answer <laughs> and so i think it's important for us to consider where we place prayer in our hierarchy of what we do Seeger goes on to talk about what keeps people from praying and he lists out this list and you can spend time reading his paragraphs after i'll just read the the bullet points and he's what he says is what keeps people from praying is one they become distracted by the noise in other words with all of the busyness they get distracted by the noise it's another thing that keeps people from praying is that they're doubted by man they think that god can't fix their problem Another thing that caused them to not pray is that they're defied by Satan. And then finally, he says that what keeps us from praying is that we're discouraged by ineffectiveness. All of those things are realities that we have to face and we have to fight and battle against. But the thing that we must keep in mind is the last paragraph, the last section, the first paragraph. He says this, many barriers keep us from praying. But nothing kept Jesus from asking his father, because Jesus knew that nothing was more vital and powerful than prayer. And he knew nothing was more vital and powerful than prayer, because
because no one was more vital and powerful than his father. If the son cries out to the father, why don't we cry out to the father like we should? And this, so this article was just a challenge to my heart that I need to focus more on prayer than I do. That prayer is of vital importance. That prayer should be the first thing I do before I do anything else. Not the afterthought when I can't come up with a solution or not the token, I have to talk to Jesus before I'm going to do what I'm going to do anyways. <laughs> so there's much more in this article, but Jeremy, do you have anything you wanted to add? Yeah, this article is challenging for me as well. I think from a slightly different perspective, the story from Mark that he told is about the demon-possessed person whom the disciples couldn't cast it out. And they asked Jesus why they couldn't cast it out, and he says this kind only comes out by prayer. He asked the question, I mean, the whole, the beginning is, but have you prayed? And the end is, but have you prayed? And he talks in there about how many things have we missed out on because we have failed to pray. That was that was really convicting to me. I, one of the things that I, generally speaking, pretty good at regular times of prayer, where I fail is spontaneous prayer, like, and spur-of-the-moment prayers. And I think that's an issue. And there's even been times where I felt like God was leading me in scare quotes to pray for someone at that moment, and I really didn't listen. All those were brought to mind as I was thinking about that. And then the, the other aspect that was... I liked the reasons that he gave, but none of those... Really, reasons really resonated with me and I'll give you a good example I read this last night read over it carefully because I knew we would be talking about it today and I thought you know I've wanted to start before we start recording pray every time and we haven't done it I'm going to make sure we do and did we pray before we started today Matt we did not did I even ask about it you did not no we just I completely forgot about it we just got into it, and off we were. <laughs> and I, when I was a pastor, there would be frequently times when I uh, would get up in the morning and go to my office, and I'd just get to work. It it really wasn't so much that it, I wasn't even thinking of it. And that, to me, is really worrisome, that I can just get to work at something, especially something that's spiritual, you know, preparing a sermon, or we're talking about spiritual conversations here, and uh, we just so easily don't even think about it, and it made me really, made me really pause and reflect on my own heart, and God isn't in all my thoughts, and it's pretty apparent because I just come in and we charge right in and I'm not saying anything about you Matthew I'm the one that was convicted about this and then I still forget about it those are the the two things that really when when I read through this that really stuck with me that showed some obvious work in my heart that still needs to be done by the grace of God I'll I'll get better I think that that's a good 
word for us to end on that there's always more work for us to do. That's a good point. And I, I hope what I'm, I hope that you don't read this article when we share it or hear this and then it just heaps guilt on you and then you end there. Right. Because that that guilt needs to be brought to Christ and at the foot of his cross you will find mercy and forgiveness. And that mercy and forgiveness will fill your heart with love for Christ and gratitude so that you'll those desires will come as you continue to turn to Christ. The guilt's okay as long, I mean, if it's, if you're truly guilty, it's okay to feel guilty. Right. But that guilt is meant to drive you to Christ. Right. Not drive you to say, well, I need to try harder. I need to do better. The guilt's meant to drive you to Christ and Christ will change your heart and desires so that you want to live for him. And it's not to say that there's no work required. Uh, You're going to have to make sure that you pray. I think it's important to put the gospel in here to make sure that we aren't motivated by legal guilt rather than gratitude for the grace of God. Exactly. I think that's a very good point. And if you want to understand more about it, then you can go back and listen to our podcast on the means of grace and we talk about it more there. But I do think that's a very good thought for us to finish on. As Jeremy said, I felt the same way. You feel guilty when you read it because you're you're being challenged by God's word, which is what God's word is supposed to do to us. But the but the responsibility then isn't to then wallow in the guilt. It's to allow that to spur us or to, pull yourself up by your own right. bootstraps. It's right. It's the goal is for us to run to Christ and find what we need in Christ, not think we can fix it ourselves or not think there's no hope to fix it at all. Those are just a few of the articles that we have been thinking about lately. And we thank you for listening as we can, as we discuss them today on Ordinary Fellowship, which is a podcast ministry of Two Rivers Community Church. If you'd like more information about Two Rivers, you can find it at tworiverscc.org. Please send us emails and comments, whatever you want, to ordinaryfellowship at gmail.com. And then follow us on Facebook at Ordinary Fellowship, where we'll post the links to these articles as well. But for now, we thank you for listening to Ordinary Fellowship, where we strive to have spiritual conversations for practical Christian living.